Mary Richards. Mary Richards. Lizzie Lassiter. It's great to be here with you today. Welcome to our Somatic Self-Care Podcast. This is episode number one, and where we've decided to start is with the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, which I suggest you order immediately and read along with us. We're going to do a series of episodes where we go through the book sort of piece by piece. And the what do you like about this book? Sort of big picture, Mary. Why should we read this book? I think that this book really furthers our understanding, whether you're a lay person, you know, yoga practitioner or someone who's generally interested in self-care. I think that this really shows uh, how we have agency, how we can cultivate agency in our own healing processes. Hmm. I like that. I felt reading the book the first time that it's super dense. It's written by a, (laughs) it's written by, he's a, he's a psychiatrist. Uh, Yeah. He's um, a clinician, a clinical uh, mental health professional and researcher. Yeah. And I was craving um, sort of the bullet points or the, the takeaways from it. And so that's what I'm hoping you can help us with. As I read it, I felt like I was feeling yes, 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 but also overwhelmed by the amount of uh, detailed information that he shares. So this episode today, where I thought we'd start is, is really introducing the book and talking about the prologue. If you're reading along with us, you might want to read the prologue, but I also vision that this series of conversations will work for people who haven't read the book in case you don't have time to do your homework we definitely want to welcome you to join us and uh we'll bring you along with uh with us even if you haven't read it so anything else you want to say mary before we jump into the prologue well i'd just like to speak For a moment, lizzie to what you were saying about the density of the book which i totally get because the wonderful thing about Bessel van der Kolk, you know, he's a psychiatric MD, right? And so what he offers is a survey of how in particular in the West, we've approached mental health and wellness. And he really brings us to our bodies. So I can see how there are large sections of the book, perhaps that folks might enjoy just skimming over for later, you know, for later consumption, because there's so much practicality in the book in the later chapters, which, you know, we'll get to in a couple of episodes. Yeah. I think that's a better way of putting it. It's quite Mm sciencey. And for those of us who are less nerd oriented, (laughs) (laughs) but that's why we have you here, our certified yoga nerd, Mary Richards. Right. My, my jumping off question is um, here on page three, he writes that um, 
We are obviously still years from attaining detailed understanding about what's going on with trauma, but the birth of three new branches of science has led to an explosion of knowledge about the effects of psychological trauma, abuse, and neglect. And then he says, these new disciplines are, these are the three new disciplines, neuroscience, the study of how the brain supports mental processes, developmental psychopathology is the second one, the study of the impact of adverse experiences on the development of mind and brain. And the third one is interpersonal neurobiology, the study of how our behavior influences the emotions, biology, and mindsets of those around us. So I'd love to focus or zoom in on this idea of interpersonal neurobiology, because when I read that, I immediately thought about yoga and our yoga practices about how we're tuning our own biological unit and how we sometimes forget to recognize how that also has potentially positive effects on other biological units that we interact with. So could you talk a little bit about any of those three disciplines you'd like, but especially the idea of interpersonal neurobiology? Well, since this book came out, there's now sort of an umbrella term for these three sciences as they pertain to uh, mind-body, body-to-brain wellness, and that's psychoneuroimmunology. And basically what we've learned in the past, in particular 50 years, thanks largely to the to the work of folks like Bessel van der Kolk and Stephen Porges and uh, you know other folks in the field, is that the body and the brain are really not separate entities, and that our feelings in our body inform our emotional state, and our emotional state feeds off the feelings in our bodies, and so. My big takeaway is that any differentiation, if you will, between mind, body, heart, and brain is an intellectual construct designed for convenience. Right. You know, because we are all, every bit of us is wired together. You know, the the lowball scientific consensus is that the adult human is well over, you know, a hundred trillion cells. Okay. We're talking trillions of cells. And what's amazing is that all of them are interacting with one another in, on some level, electrically, chemically, et cetera. And what we've learned is that, you know, everybody's unique, just like everyone else. And this is where mind-body interventions, as they're called in the research, practices like yoga or uh, you know, qigong or tai chi, et cetera, that one of their most accessible, if you will, and meaning accessible to the person levels is, levers to pull is that uh, the more mindfully aware we become of our body sensations, the more aware we become of our emotions and ultimately why we may be feeling them. Mm. 
You know, yeah, I think for me, it's like I creep down here into my studio most mornings and do my practice, which is 20 or 30 minutes of moving, uh, breathing, meditating. And like, I can't really explain why it works or the magic of it, but I know in my bones that the mornings I start with retreating for a few minutes to close my eyes, I often play music. I'm just moving. It's like this deep introverted 20 or 30 minutes of moving the physical body and move. And there's no thinking as much involved. I know in my bones that those are better days. Yes. And part of that, Lizzie, is the, the processes that you're enlivening when you're in your yoga room and you're moving quietly at your own rhythm and you're listening to music, which of course is created by other people. So it's a community engagement is you're actually stimulating your interpersonal biology, specifically your social engagement system. And I think one of the things that Body Keeps the Score does so well is it describes this social engagement system and its necessity, not only for helping us foster conditions of calm, relaxation, and grounded centeredness in ourselves, but it helps us recognize that in others. Okay, so social engagement system. So, sounds like something from Star Trek, like activating the social engagement system. <laughs> like what, like, can you say, can you say it in other words? Like what, and, and, and what is it? The, so what does that mean? So basically we are communal creatures, right? We live in families. We live in neighborhoods in uh, cities, etc., And, you know, we've all heard the phrase, it takes a village. And that's true because we are neurologically built for connection. Because let's face it, we need the law of comparative advantage on our side to survive. So I may be good at uh, gardening and you may be good at foraging or whatever. You know, these are just examples that maybe I have knee problems that make it harder for me to get out into the woods to gather, you know, the, the truffles and the like, you know? And so we are organized individually to function in a collective. This is our interpersonal biology. We actually have structures in the front of our brains, the prefrontal cortex, which resides behind our foreheads. We have structures there known as mirror neurons. And those mirror neurons are really what enable us to recognize tension, ease, et cetera, in others. And then we will reflect in our own emotional tone, tenor, and action state, similar emotions. We are mirror images of one another. Our nervous systems are wired in such a way that we are uniquely 
programmed to evaluate subtle facial expressions and cues and changes in voice and things like that in such a subtle way that it changes our physiology. Have you ever, have you ever noticed this, Lizzie? Um, you'll, you'll go out to your, to your little bears, to your boys after being in your yoga room and everyone's a lot more chill. Even if you've come out to a Lego uh, explosion, yeah, disaster, <laughs> uh, you're not as perturbed by it, and there's less um, perturbation in your kids, right? Yeah. Versus the experiences that we have, you know, just in the daily, where maybe we haven't had a chance to connect to ourselves yet through just conscious breathing or some asana or whatever. And maybe you have an underlying feeling of uh, anxiety or things aren't right. Things just aren't right. And as a result, uh, you're in the kitchen trying to get, you know, lunch prepared and the kids are running around like crazy and you can't focus and they can't focus sure you've had that experience. Absolutely. And then I snap and then suddenly I'm shouting at my children and I'm like, I am and a yoga like, teacher. Like, yeah. And then you're, yeah. yeah Why then am you're I yelling? Yeah. yeah. So that, that's exactly that. That is a big piece of it. Focus for me. Like, and it's a, it's a tension that my partner Nico and I have in the mornings. This time for me is golden, but I find a key component is that I do need to be alone. Like once in a while, one of the two and a half year old twins or both will come down and want to be in my space. And what happens is then my yoga turns immediately into gymnastics. It's like, yes, I'm just stretching my hamstrings, which has some benefits, but the internalized focus gets split for me when my kids are in the room, because then I'm like, Oh, is someone drawing on the couch? Like what's I might like, I'm also paying attention to what they're doing, destroying my studio. And so that that's what I wanted to ask is like this this irony or this mismatch somehow between the experience that so many of us have had about retreating into our solo practices or even in the before pandemic times going to a group yoga class had that sense of of shutting things out and retreating to the yoga mat and and but what you're saying is that though that activates our social engagement system so how do you explain this mismatch between turning inside, making us more available for people on the outside. I'd like to reframe the term mismatch because it's actually quite interesting. What, what the example you just gave Lizzie is so perfect because you go into your yoga room and sometimes one of your little ones or both of them comes in and joins you and the practice takes on a very different feel for you. It's less a practice and more of a parenting engagement. But what you're doing when you're parenting in that way is you're actually training your kids in social engagement. Okay. Okay. But what about, what about this idea that, that, because 
it can feel selfish, especially for yeah, mo- yeah. mothers or caretakers or to, to, to go away from people to do our self-care, our somatic self-care practices. But what I hear you saying, which I love is like, it's actually helps me engage when I'm engaging with myself on a regular basis, it helps me engage with others. So could you talk a little bit about that connection? You, you just read my mind, Lizzie, because I was about to say, and see, this is what's happening. The reason why you're able to tolerate, and I hope you that folks understand I'm using tolerance in a more like physiologic sense. <laughs> you're, you're better able to tolerate the, the, the change in rhythm when the kids come in and join you on the mat because you have practiced so much by yourself. So the reason why you're able to do that is because your time alone developing your attunement skills, your somatosensory attention, your ability to describe within yourself the ins and outs of your sensations, how you feel in your body, that then whether we're explicitly aware of it or not, it puts us more in touch with our emotions. And the more in touch we are with our emotions, then in theory, the less reactive we become. We have more space to let things arise in their natural flow and to stay in sync. And we can only really become in sync with others when we're in sync with ourselves. Okay, is this making sense? Absolutely. I'd love to dive into emotions. Like I've actually heard a doctor say to me, uh, an MD, a surgeon that I know, uh, said to me, I don't get what the big deal is about emotions. Like if you're just living your life out of emotions, that's, it's irrelevant, like just be rational. So there is that strain of thinking in our culture about emotions being a secondary, uh, less necessary, or, or, or also, of course, there's kind of the male, female polarity that we've had excuse me, that, you know, it's the female side and it's, it's not to be focused on and and we need to just focus on rationality. So what broadly are some of the ideas that come out of this book, the body keeps the score about the sort of intelligence of emotions? Well, I love this. So, you know, this, this doctor um, couldn't be more behind the times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how true. Oh, so true. If you knew. <laughs> because emotions are the wellspring that from which the present moment arises. It, and this is later in, uh, in Body Keeps the Score. Bessel van der Kolk refers to Um, one of Darwin's works about emotions. I won't talk about this too much right now, but 
even Darwin back in 1872 was talking about we it, the necessity of um, emotional awareness and attunement to improve our chances for physiologic survival. That's how important emotions are. Okay, so we're not machines, nor are we reptiles. <laughs> reptiles have a much simpler existence. Okay neurologically, emotional, psychologically, et cetera. We are mammals and we tend to our young, we tend to folks through our communities, et cetera. It's, it, we are bioengineered for connection. And what is it that we are connecting to? How are we connecting to other people? Well, we connect through how, they, how we make one another feel. If we were, if emotions weren't important, we wouldn't have facial expressions. Mm. Mm. We wouldn't write poetry or music. Mm. We wouldn't fight over trucks and toys like that, you know? Yeah. We are feeling beings. Everything in our neurology is organize every i would say everything in our biology actually is organized toward the communal state from how we're evaluating threats to our safety to how we are perceiving safety and reciprocity and all of these structures that are monitoring not only our own feeling and emotional states but that of the people we're interacting with, those neurological structures, Lizzie, are very close to the, our brainstem, to the areas of our brain and central nervous system that are responsible for homeostatic balance. So all of these, this social engagement system, the structures and features of our intersocial, interpersonal biology are anatomically co-located with our foundational mechanisms for survival. My goodness, no wonder this pandemic has been so disruptive and painful for us with, it has disrupted all of our social patterns of social engagement. Oh, yes. And, and I was talking to a girlfriend the other day about how my social skills have atrophied. <laughs> yes, we I went to a party and I was like, I don't know where to put my hands. Like I'm talking, I'm standing here. I'm like with people and like, I, I feel like I'm 12. Because we've been for very, very sensible reasons. We've been instructed to stay physically distant from one another, to wear masks, to limit our contacts, to limit our interactions with the world outside of our homes and most intimate family members. And yet here we are, this walking radar system of how are other people feeling and how am I relating to how other people are feeling and how are my feelings leaking out onto other people? And we've been removed 
from so many common interactions and then you know layer in masks where we cannot see facial expression it's confusing for us yeah because if you think about it you know so much of our communication is nonverbal. like out the way our our interpersonal biology works lizzie is you know we can intuit how other people are feeling that we're interacting with just by subconsciously perceiving the, the level of tension in their body. Absolutely. Yeah. So as we move to close for today, I would love to read a sentence from page four of the prologue and see, get your thoughts and reactions to this. Bessel writes, but we also see that the imprints from the past can be transformed by having physical experiences that directly contradict the helplessness, rage, and collapse that are part of trauma and thereby regaining self-mastery. Immediately, I've written in the, in the margin here, equals restorative yoga, question mark. So can you speak a little bit, Mary, about the somatic self-care practices and, and uh, being perhaps as specific as possible? Uh, can you give us a couple somatic self-care practices that you love that help us uh, have physical experiences that directly contradict traumatic experiences in the past. Yeah. So the wellspring from which this wisdom uh, it arises, the Bessel van der Kolk so eloquently presents and body keeps the score is basically, you know, we live in our bodies. Okay. So we've been taught to live in our brains. The, the brain, our thinking brain is, our most important feature. It's what differentiates us from other animals, etc. Here's the actual experiential reality though, and that is we're embodied creatures and every nanosecond, our bodies, unbeknownst to our conscious thinking minds, are making adjustments to keep us healthy, alive, safe, et cetera. And what we can do, especially when we've experienced trauma, whether it's emotional trauma or physical injury, is we can once again become friends with our bodies, instead of trying to think our way out of pain, we actually need to feel our way into ourselves, feel our way into discomforts and ease. And so this is where yoga offers numerous tools available to us 
to help us reconnect to our grid, if you will, our power grid. And that really does reside in the body. So not only do we have restorative yoga, which is excellent for helping us unwind tension in the body and the mind and to physiologically rest, okay? Because see, if we're not able to rest, there's no way we can make decisions or plan or dream or visualize because we are in a state of hypervigilant tension that actually turns off the areas of the brain responsible for decision-making and and dreaming and the like, creativity and the like, okay? So restorative yoga helps with physical and mental tension and pranayama is one of the most potent strategies that we have uh, for connecting ourselves to the present moment and our felt sense of living right here, right now. Because when we are paying attention to the breath, we can't really think about anything else. Mm. And so by doing that, by anchoring ourselves in the awareness of the breath, then we are able to go deeper into ourselves and, oh, I feel this pain in my low back. And oh, the emotions that attend that are fear or anxiety, whatever it is, you know, it's these practices of yoga, they basically help us create a container in which we can observe our experience right here, right now, root ourselves in the present. And this is very important when we're talking about trauma because trauma has occurred in the past. And so what's happening with our, after we've had trauma is our physiology has been remodeled. And so it's, it's stuck, if you will, in this threat responsiveness based on what happened to us before. And in order for us to soften the grip of the trauma, we need to spend more time in the present. And that's exactly what practices like asana, slow moving, in particular, slow moving asana, pranayama, restorative yoga, japa, mudra repetition, uh, meditation. That's exactly what these practices do for us. Mm. All right. I have one last question before we close. How do you define trauma for someone who's listening? I mean, uh, I immediately think of, for example, when I brought my twins home from the hospital, the kind of hypervigilant system that turned on for me, oh, I, I, like sort of, I mean, it was such a wonderful gift, these two healthy full-term baby boys, but it was also, I experienced what I would call, but then it feels almost like I'm, I shouldn't be allowed to call that trauma because trauma is like horrible, horrible things that we hear about that happened in people's childhoods 
with abuse and uh, sexual, like, you know what I'm saying? So like, how, how big, where do you draw the line around trauma or how do you define what, who, who has been through, who of us has been through trauma? Are, if we're alive, we have trauma. And I'm not saying that to be flip. I, uh, trauma doesn't have to be uh, some big event. Everyone, see, all of us are wired a little differently. We have the most differentiation on our vascular and nervous system levels. Just anatomically, we're all wired differently, a bit differently. Okay. But more than that, we each have our own uh, lived experience. Oh, I hear Kira back there. Doggy <laughs> Kira. <laughs> Kira's lived experience is to change her sleeping position right now. So, um, so this is the thing, like, it's not that I've had more trauma than you, or you've had more trauma than me. That's it's how do you feel? How did something affect you? Mm. And so that could be, a teacher in school just constantly calling you out. You know what I mean? That can be traumatic, be under having just criticism. And maybe this teacher's intentions are, maybe they have a growth mentality and they just believe the criticism is helping you, but you may not be hearing it as helpful. That can be traumatic. The, the key differentiation, I would say, between trauma and upset, you know, something that upsets you, but you're able to let go, is that an experience sticks with you in such a way that it activates your sympathetic nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. So you store tension, you ruminate, you engage in negative self-talk, you experience difficult emotions that you'd like perhaps to disassociate from. Mm. So the, for, for me, the difference is what the effects are in the person. How have we been rewired in response to stimuli? Mm. So wonderful as always to speak with you, Mary Richards. We can, you can tell us where we can find you on the internet. Well, you can find me at uh, yogawithmaryrichards.com website. That's my Insta handle and all of that. And uh, soon I'll have a Substack newsletter up. Yay. <laughs> I'm working on that. So, and of course you can always find me um, skulking about with you, Lizzie. <laughs> yes, I hope you're already subscribed to my newsletter, which you can find by going to lizzie.yoga, L-I-Z-Z-I-E dot yoga. Mary and I are your optimistic, enthusiastic cheerleaders for simple ways that you can take better care of your sweet self. We believe in you and I love you, Mary Richards. I love you, Lizzie Lassiter. Bye.